As the Money Burns is an original podcast by Nikki Wooder. Based on historical research, this is a deep exploration into what happened to a set of actual heirs and heiresses to some of America's most famous fortunes when the Great Depression hits. Each episode has three primary sections. Section 1 is a narrative story. Section 2 goes deeper into the historical facts. Section 3 focuses on contemporary, emotional, and personal connections. Story Recap After bowing at Buckingham Palace and her Newport debutante ball, richest girl Doris Duke is the debutante of her season, while other former debutantes have become sales girls after financial troubles. Now back to As the Money Burns. No expense spared. Come join the biggest debutante ball of the season, of many seasons. It's going to be one for the record books, and no one is going to want to miss out. This episode is dedicated to the loving memory of my mother. Section 1 Story Outside on a freezing cold night, a large crowd gathers in anticipation. Yellow lights illuminate the snowy streets. Police oversee the 46th Street and Madison Avenue entrance of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. The bright French windows contrast the dark outside. Despite the growing poverty, homelessness, and despair, people gather to see opulence on display. Debutantes in white ermine and college boys in white ties and coattails arrive in Packards, Cadillacs, and Rolls Royces. What is the occasion? The time has come for chubby budding fashionista and teen heiress Barbara Hutton to debut. The newspapers are already taking notice, reporting on her whereabouts, fashions, and activities, like the tea dance hosted by her uncle E.F. Hutton and his wife, Marjorie Merriweather Post, on December 7th. Barbara wore a pale blue chiffon organdy frock, made long and sweeping, with a cape collar banded with pale pink ribbons and little bows. She also wore a little cap of organdy with two rosettes over the ear. Her hair has been both described as blonde or dark-haired. She is also noted as one of the prettiest debutantes of her season, and likely the richest, with the exception of one other teen heiress, the tall and awkward Doris Duke. Both Barbara and Doris flit about from activity to activity at the height of the debutante season in New York. Monday, December 22, 1930, at 11 p.m. The Ritz-Carlton transforms into a moonlit garden through the work of the Metropolitan Opera and Ziegfeld Folly set designer, Austrian-American architect Joseph Urban, also designer of Mar-a-Lago, among other creations. The Ritz's grand ballroom ceiling is covered in blue gauze and dotted with silver stars to represent the night sky. Ballroom doors and windows are covered with silver cloth. New York florist Max Schling further enhances the setting. Balconies banked with evergreens and poinsettias. Trees from California and Florida brought in for this special occasion, with eucalyptus sprays being a favorite touch for tables. Throughout, silver birches, poinsettias, talisman, and pernay roses fill the background. A beautiful, transcendent, and magical setting. At the stairs in front of the Oval Restaurant, Barbara stands with her stepmother, Irene Hutton, receiving guests. Male escorts are key to the debutante's grand night. But alas, Barbara is accompanied by her two cousins, Woolworth Woolley Donahue and James Donahue Jr., also known as Jimmy, and for those closest, Jim. While she will definitely laugh, it is still less than romantic to have your 16-year-old flamboyantly gay cousin 
as an escort. Barbara wears a white tulle bouffant frock in a Chanel manner. The skirt in tiers bordered with silver spangles, molded bodice, a cape forming a point at the back and rounded line in front, a string of pearls, long white gloves, and silver slippers. She carries a bouquet of white butterfly orchids, a stunning outfit that is not so stunning for her body type. Stepmother Irene's gown is a rosy pink flesh-colored satin, fitted in the bodice with a full skirt, the décolletage low at the back and draped in the front, a long pendant ruby and diamond necklace and long white gloves. In Irene's mind, she gets another chance to live vicariously the life she never had, nor ever will. For most guests, white is the predominant theme in almost every fabric, satin, lace, chiffon, net, taffeta, and crepes. Shades of white range from the most important clear white down to the more prominent silvery and off-whites. Silver embellishments in crystal beads, sequins, and rhinestones adding more sparkle, and scattered in bands, shoulder straps, and star-shaped motifs. Paler colors, especially in blues and pinks, also appear. Aunt Marjorie wears a pale blue satin with décolletage, introducing rivers and tie-ins at the back, and the skirt with train. Deep, rich blue shades also seemed newer than black. The young widow, Mrs. Reginald Vanderbilt, stands out in a deep sapphire blue lace gown with a low back and short tunic line, pairing it with beige gloves and chiffon square. The next most prevalent color is red, matching the holiday poinsettias, sometimes in a thin manner and others based on the fabric, whether lace, taffeta, chiffon, velvet, or crepe. Other notable dresses include rich blue sequins, another in a rich bronze shade with cape, and a deep midnight blue with silver sheer metal mesh. The high-waisted empire line is favored, and ruffles are another occurring effect at the hips, off-shoulder, and hemlines. Several dresses pair the themes of white with touches of red in embroidery, beading, scarves, slippers, or handkerchiefs. Two hundred gather for dinner before the nearly one thousand join the dance festivities. Barbara and Irene greet the arrivals, so many for the night. Familiar names and faces. Some of the higher echelons are missing, but enough of the desirables. The Bella Paris and best friend Sylvia Castilla de Rivas with her brother, future Marquis Philippe, and popular former debutante, member of the Junior League, and now salesgirl Happy Shannon are among the guests. Proud scion Jakey Astor makes his own unheralded debut this winter, attending many prominent parties as a particularly favorable Deb's Delight. His popular and prominent cousins, Henry Van Allen with his wife, and Sam Van Allen with another debutante, Elizabeth Betty Kent, make their appearances. The more jovial brothers have a slightly solemn air about them. Following them, the former popular Deb of her season, and their sister, Louise Van Allen, beams as she enters on the arm of Russian prince, Alexis Divani. Barbara's face nearly drops. Rumors were the prince had already left for Paris, but alas, here he is dashingly handsome and possibly breaking sylvia's heart yet again or maybe he will win her back tonight that latter hope quickly dashed when a sparkle from louise's finger stabs barbara in her own heart there it is a familiar ruby ring the one barbara had given to the prince for sylvia the older guests gather for their supper in the crystal room decorated in evergreens on the tables are lighted candles and centerpieces of white heather, pernay and caladius roses, and Persian mountain violets. The Russian ensemble and the Howard Lannan Orchestra play in the background. 
Tonight, no expense spared, especially for music. The younger guests are served in the Oval Restaurant in Palm Court, both filled with silver birches and tables decorated with talisman roses and Gerber Jamesons. The Meyer Davis Orchestra plays alternating with the handsome young crooner and one of the first teen pop idols, Rudy Valet. At Barbara's table, Doors Duke and Cousin Wooly sit among the 23 select guests. Barbara can hardly focus, constantly watching Louise and the prince from a distance and taking note of Sylvia's whereabouts. After dinner, the guests move into the ballroom. Supreme hostess Cobina Wright strolls around on the arm of her handsome stockbroker husband, William May Wright, a.k.a. Bill. As Cobina marvels over the beauty, Bill mutters his suspicions. There is no way stockbroker Franklin Hutton could succeed this well on Barbara's five-and-dime Woolworth inheritance. Everyone has been damaged by the crash. Just look at the chaos in Nashville, Bill scoffs. And that court request for a private Pullman car? Obviously, there is something to miss in such garish and vulgar displays. Aunt Marjorie took great efforts to provide a program of special dances performed by the sensational and sensuous Spanish flamenco artist La Argentina. With grand and dramatic gestures, the beautiful dancer takes the center of the ballroom floor. Those well-chosen for the stag line, young college men of reputable family, focus more on getting drunk off champagne. Like other regular dances, the girls cower to the side waiting for invitations from the avoidant males. As La Argentina spins across the floor, the rude and dismissive audience hardly pays attention. Frustrated and annoyed, Aunt Marjorie jumps on stage and grabs the microphone, admonishing the youth for their disrespectful behavior. She threatens to end the party if proper behavior fails to ensue. Quickly, in eerily silence, the rest of the night's events will run more smoothly. As the more traditional dancing resumes, the prince shows off his skills with Louise in his arms. Hot-blooded Spanish Sylvia counters with her own seductive moves. The attention palpable. Louise tries to keep up, but cannot outdo the more sultry Sylvia. Barbara, Doris, Jakey, and the Van Allen brothers all wonder if more dramatic works are in store for the night. The endless extravagant evening is only a third of the way through, and will go well into the next morning and breakfast. To be continued. Section 2, History and Historiography During the winter holidays, another important tradition occurs, the debutante season. For 1930 New York, an estimated 180 girls will come out in society with an average cost of $3,000 per individual party with 400 guests. According to the managing director at Pierre's, the restaurant and hotel featured in episode 42, Pinwheels. Therefore, each hotel will rake in close to 500000 per season. Debutantes are big business. Thus, other side businesses pop up for services. Social secretaries are in top demand as they handle the guest list and make sure the most eligible and desirable attend. Two or three males for the stag line for every female to ensure always available dance partners. A social secretary might also handle invitations and venue logistics. Then there's the retail market now proliferating with the debutante shops providing advisory committees. Of course, the prime feature of a debut would be the mother-daughter planning sessions, which Barbara Hutton does not get. Her mother, Edna Woolworth Hutton, died years earlier. 
Barbara's stepmother, Irene Hutton, is not quite up to snuff. And thus, Barbara's aunt, maternal side Jessie Woolworth Donahue, and paternal side Marjorie Merriweather Post Hutton take charge of the planning and ensuring this will be the best party ever, as both aunts themselves had hard times in adjusting and being accepted by society. Within less than a week, there are three debutante balls with 1,000 guests. Peggy Potter has her debut at the Pierre's also on Monday, December 22nd, and South Carolina debutante Natalie Coe has her party at the Ritz-Carlton on December 25th. Every night that week, the Ritz-Carlton's Crystal Room, Pierre's, Park Lane, Savoy Plaza, Central Park Casino, and the Sherry Netherlands are booked full with debuts. But it is Barbara Hutton who has the biggest debutante party up to that time. Her normally penny-pinching, freeloading, and prone-to-rentals father, Franklin Hutton, willingly pays for his daughter's lavish event. Reports indicate anywhere from the low end of 30000 up to the more likely unheard of sum, 60000 Essentially, today's equivalent of the first million-dollar party. The thousand and more guest list, as published in the New York Times on December 23, 1930, includes by order mention. Mr. and Mrs. James Van Allen, also more popularly known as Jimmy Van Allen for our series, Henry, Barbara's maternal cousin and co-debutante, Helena McCann, Popular debutante-turned-salesgirl Happy Shannon, Doris's Fermata classmate Dorothy Mahana, co-committee chair of the October Ball Josephine Lambert and her sister Natalie, former debutante and ballroom dancer June Blossom, Barbara's best friend and the prince's forbidden lover Sylvia Castilla de Rivas, Louise Van Allen, another October Ball co-chair and granddaughter of President Theodore Roosevelt, Grace Roosevelt, Doris's Buckingham Palace co-deb and future wife of Sam Van Allen, Elizabeth Kent. Doris Duke, William Van Allen, more popularly known as Sam. Barbara's future companion and biographer, Philip Van Ronsler. John Jacob Astor VI, Jakey. Bernard Barouche Jr., a.k.a. Selling Barouche. Sylvia's brother and future Marquis, Philippe de Rivas. Cousins and escorts, Woolworth and James Donahue. Additional names worth mentioning. Mr. and Mrs. Preston Surgis, Princess Laura Murat, the Torleone sisters, they are the Italian princesses, one of which, Donna Marina Torleona, is Brookshield's grandmother, George Vanderbilt, Winston Churchill, Viscount Atchison, as well as several Biddles, Oceanslaws, Rockefellers, Belmonts, among other young elites. The older, more established family names and adults did not likely attend, but their younger counterparts did. Elsewhere, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. is also repeatedly referenced as an attendee in several accounts. Women's Wear Daily mentions Mrs. Reginald Vanderbilt, also known as Gloria Morgan Vanderbilt, mother to little Gloria Vanderbilt, an identical twin to Thelma Furness, the married lover to David the Prince of Wales and future King Edward VIII and Duke of Windsor. Those above are clearly documented, yet there are likely some names that weren't published. Those in question would be Cobina Wright and her husband Bill, Doris's admirer, sometimes escort, and heir to two fortunes, Jimmy Cromwell, Huntington Hartford, Frank Shields, and lastly, Prince Alexis Devani. In one of the biographies on Barbara, the somewhat unreliable Poor Little Rich Girl, it is indicated that the prince had left only days before. However, in that book's TV movie adaptation, also titled Poor Little Rich Girl, starring Farrah Fawcett as Barbara, Prince Alexis is at the ball with Louise Van Allen. We can see clearly in the New York Times guest list Louise and her brothers were all in attendance, along with the prince's lover and Barbara's best friend, Sylvia Castilla de Rivas. So maybe the prince did avoid mixing with both females present. It is also very likely 
He could have been there, but not listed in the paper. So many stories about Barbara get the select details wrong. Rumors and gossip complicate matters further. I am forever correcting very important facts and dynamics that will change the general narrative and thereby our understanding. For crying out loud, even the dates are constantly mixed up. Every biography states her debutante ball as December 21st, but newspapers clearly mark the date as December 22nd. I don't know, maybe it's because the event starts late in the evening around 11 p.m. and lasts almost wholly into the next morning from 4 a.m. or 7 a.m. Another example of conflicts is the reference to the Spanish flamenco dancer. In books, they refer to La Argentinita, but the period newspapers clearly refer to La Argentina, one misspelled as Argentine who is considered the better dancer but harder to gather information as searches compete with the actual country. However, these are not merely recollections may vary issues, but rather the lapses in memories recorded decades later, some by hearsay, rumor, and scandal. It is somewhat understandable, the later confusion. I know, these sound like trivial, definitely would-be rich white people problems. However, I am trying to point out the intricacy of details and the myriad of complications in trying to suss out facts and reconstruct the era. Hence, priority is given more to the emotional facts in order to contextualize what everything potentially means over hardcore facts that really are somewhat trivial. I mean, does it matter the difference between Sunday, December 21st or Monday, December 22nd? Or the fact that this is one of the biggest, most expensive parties of its time in a very complicated era? What is going on in their private lives that will impact their futures? And when it comes to the emotional weight, the psychological dynamics, the twisted and increasing complicated tales I'm telling, this event matters. I pull one string and find a thousand more paths of an intricate spiraling web. So for those reasons and others that will be revealed as the story progresses, I have put Princess Alexis Devani at this ball along with Cobina Wright and her husband, Huntington Hartford and Jimmy Cromwell. Because this one particular night, this one exact debutante ball has large ramifications for all. Maybe only psychologically, possibly comparatively, but it really is a big, big deal. Section 3, Contemporary and Personal Relevance Ever waited for that perfect dream moment for it to go so incredibly awry? Every girl has that perfect dream. The sweet 16, homecoming, the prom night, the wedding. That grand special event in which you are the center Beautiful, romantic, glorious moment of triumph. Females spend years planning and debating colors, flowers, fashions, and romantic suitors in excited anticipation. When anything is going to be that big and involving anything remotely celebrity-like, and headlines vicariously participating as a dream or fairy tale unfolds. Plenty of news coverage, maybe even live broadcasts, and at other times, reality TV shows. From extravagant over-the-top parties to famous celebrity and royal weddings, there is a fascination peering from the outside of glamour with very little information regarding what truly happens inside. Well, unless it's a reality TV series or involving Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Then we are treated to endless recounts, details, and drama. Barbara Hutton's ball is best explained as a quote by Cher from the movie Clueless. She's a full-on Monet. 
referring to another rival character, Amber, Cher's protege, Ty, replies, What's a Monet? Cher continues, It's like a painting, see? From far away, it's okay, but up close, it's a big old mess. Barbara Hutton's debutante ball is spectacularly beautiful from a distance, but in reality, a total disaster up close. I have always likened it to a fuzzy pink nightmare, when I used to discuss the story with a major heir affiliated and familiar with this world, he always chuckled at the accuracy of that description and commended my humanity in understanding the true psychological underpinnings of these tales and the people involved. We all have dreams, but there are some events so big that they forever impact our psyches. There is far more to the story of this evening and its long-standing effects for many involved. I hope you continue listening to our series. For those wishing to see visual representations of this past world, I recommend a few Instagram accounts. Power Privilege Money recently featured in November a series of images of Barbara Hutton. Mansions of the Gilded Age features the homes and buildings often discussed in this series. The Gilded Age Society covers the era shortly before our series and illustrates the world in which the wealth, fortunes, and social rules were born that blur and complicate the lives of our characters. Once again, that's Power Privilege and Money. Mansions of the Gilded Age, and the Gilded Age Society. One of the most consistent compliments I receive involves the music used within this podcast. The music used has been digitally restored and remastered by Past Perfect Vintage Music. They have a wonderful collection of music from the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s. Their music has been used in multiple period films and television productions, including The King's Speech and a new film coming out early next year. Check out their collection at www.passperfect.com. They have three wonderful holiday albums, Vintage Christmas, featuring musical hits of Fats Waller, Nat King Cole, and Santa Claus is Coming to Town by Bean Crosby and the Andrews Sisters. The Vintage Christmas Tree album with Nat King Cole, K-Star, Peggy Lee, and Margaret Whiting, among its 25 tracks, including Rudolph and Frosty. And lastly, the Perfect Christmas album with Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, along with others, and available for the first time in more than 10 years. Next, when we return to As the Money Burns, the most extravagant debutante ball is in full swing, but disaster both inside and out looms on the horizon. Until then. As the Money Burns is an original podcast written, produced, and voiced by Nikki Woodard based on historical research. Archival music has been provided by Past Perfect Vintage Music. Check out their website at www.passperfect.com. Please come visit us at As The Money Burns via Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Transcripts, timeline, episode guide, and character bios are available at asthemoneyburns.com. 